believe we've been only here for two days, huh? It's, it's very full, uh, being on retreat. And one of the reasons it's full, and not just because of the challenges we face, you know, dealing with our minds, being with ourselves, but it, the, the reality is, is we're, um, there are more moments of mindfulness for everybody in this room, I'm sure of it, than, than there is in your daily life. I mean, we might be mindful of things we don't like, um, or things that are coming up, or um, kind of what Susan spoke about this morning, where, quite frankly, oftentimes the first couple of days, it's really going from one hindrance to the next. And there's you know, kind of a joke around multiple hindrance attacks, uh, where there's like three or four of them going on simultaneously. Um, so that's an extremely common phenomenon. I, I don't know a meditator that hasn't worked with the hindrances at one time or another, and uh, say a little bit more about that as, as I get into the talk. But what I'd like to talk about tonight, a little bit about the fruit of our effort. And I'd like to talk about the relaxation of inner freedom, which is really at the heart um, of this particular practice. You know, we're putting ourselves through something and it bears fruit. You know, if we approach it the right way and we persevere and we commit ourselves, you know, in an earnest way to waking up, there's no reason why uh, we won't experience the benefits. So I remember at one point in my practice, after many, many years, I met um, my spiritual home, I would say my spiritual practice, where I feel, um, you know, I've started at a very young age and I've been a Vipassana practitioner pretty much my entire adult life. And um, it resonates for me, this particular approach, always has. But we can also discover wisdom, you know, in, in di- a lot of different ways and from a lot of different teachers and folks that in our life. And I had the good fortune to meet, actually he came over and he visited uh, and he taught at the study center right down the street, BCBS. And his name was Sheng Yen and he was a Chan master. Um, Chan is the precursor to Zen. So it comes from China. And uh, so I got to know him, got to meet him and very inspired because um, my experience of him was this guy really knew what he was talking about. I mean, he was felt extremely enlightened. So I started sitting these 10-day retreats with him over the course of seven or eight years. And, you know, but it was a very different style. It was extremely, you know, it was really exactly what we're doing in many, many respects, but the forms and the structure uh, significantly different. Uh, you know, this, this form I know, if you're a new student, um, this form is full of challenges and, you know, starting at 5.15. Um, let me just describe a little bit about the form that, that, um, that I entered into uh, with, the, with the Chan retreats is that um, the conditions were quite primitive. It was just a center that just was beginning to get put together. Um, and uh, me and 40 other guys uh, slept in the meditation hall on the floor. And um, so you didn't get a really good night's sleep, put it that way. Um, Wake-up time was 4 (laughs) o'clock, not 5.15, 4 o'clock. 
And the way you woke, got woken up was uh, someone would come around with a wooden block and a mallet and then smash the wooden block and the mallet. And sometimes it was quite close to your head. Um, so you can imagine, you know, it's not like one of these programmed alarm clocks. Uh, you know, right from the very get-go, you got hit with an incredibly unpleasant experience after, you know, in the state of complete exhaustion. So what we did is we practiced together. We lived together 24 hours a day. You were never alone. You did sitting together. You did walking together. You did eating together in the same room. Uh, you went to the bathroom in public-style bathrooms. Um, slept together. Basically, you were together constantly. And you don't know me very well. You may get to know me better as the retreat goes on. But I, I do like my privacy. Uh, and you know, I tend to want to go my own way. Let's put it that way. So when I was in this particular structure, as you can see, there guess there was a lot of resistance uh, to putting myself through that. Felt like really hard work, and there was a lot of chanting and a lot of stuff that you know, just I'm not that into. But I was getting incredible teaching, you know. And he was an amazing teacher. He was in many ways the right teacher for me at the right time. So. I put myself into that situation and, and all of that. And he would come in at night and give us a talk. And he would say, you know, retreats are just like a vacation. And the first couple of treats, I kind of look at him and I think, forget it. Uh, this is not my concept of a vacation at all. Uh, this is like really, really hard work. And it's really dealing with a lot of difficult um, things that, that are kind of being taken away from me, putting me in a situation that I'm uncomfortable with. But after a while, it didn't take that long, I began to understand what he meant when he said it was like a vacation. Because what he was pointing to was the vacation of inner freedom. Which is everything to do with the way we relate to what we're encountering. Everything to do with the way we're relating to what we encounter. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. In many ways, this is a training. It's a journey. It's a journey. It's a process. It's a process of developing very gently training our minds, our hearts, our minds to, to relate to the here and now in a fundamentally new way. So one can imagine, that, that's asking a lot of us, you know, to begin to relate to our moment-to-moment experience, whatever it might be, in a very different way, a way that isn't so conditioned by our habits and our attitudes about ourselves or about the experiences that we're meeting. What I love about this particular approach is that it's practical. You know, it's accessible. It's accessible. What makes it accessible? Well, what makes it accessible is our innate resources, you know, the qualities that every human being has. And it's simply a matter 
of gaining access and strengthening and nurturing and making wise and compassionate choices along the way that will nurture and support those inner resources, those qualities that will support this journey, this journey towards freedom. And what it includes and what's so fundamental in the practice is about learning to relate to things, as Susan has said in her talks, learning to relate to things as they are. And actually that is what we are doing here. That is what you are doing here, is we're relating to things as they are. Now we may not like it, sometimes we might like it, sometimes we might not, but that's what we're doing. And I appreciate that because for me, it's authentic. It's authentic. You know, when we rely on secondhand knowledge, when we rely on books or ideas about certain experiences, we read all sorts of things, you know, it doesn't sink in. You know, it can be very inspiring. But the reality is, is that we have to walk this path ourselves. We have to put our effort, we have to put our body and minds and hearts behind our intention, our aspiration for freedom. And what we encounter so often in this journey of awakening is we encounter the things that aren't working for us. We encounter habits of mind that undermine us, that torment us you know, that create a lot of suffering for us. And it's unavoidable to begin to encounter that. That's the way the conditioned mind, that's what the conditioned mind has learned to do. You know, we take it, as Susan said the other day, we take it, we can take it so personally. But the reality is, is what we're observing are what we have been learned, what we have learned, what we have been conditioned to buy into. And one of the major forms of conditioning is, of course, the tendency to cling to pleasure and to push away pain. Strong habits of mind. In our retreat, we're paying very, you know, we're working, we're, we're, we're turning the ship, we're turning, you know, we're turning, pointing towards freedom in this particular practice by paying attention in a more sustained way. And what we discover is that we attach to the oddest things. You know, we attach to seeing our name on a list. You know, we attach to any change at all that happens on a bulletin board. Uh, We get really attached to what we're going to have for lunch. And literally 20 minutes later, if you're being really mindful, it's gone. You know, I mean, the lunch is over. And it didn't really bring us that happiness that the mind has bought into. It's momentary. It's not to devalue it. It's not to say, you know, lunch doesn't matter. You know, we all have our preferences. Hopefully you enjoy the food. It's nourishing for sure. All of that. But it is momentary. And the tendency we have is to invest our happiness in momentary experience. And that is the definition of non-freedom. That's the definition of non-freedom. 
we invest solely in conditioned phenomena, things that are changing, well, we're in a very fragile, vulnerable place. And we will inevitably suffer until we learn something new. You know, until we begin to relate to our experience, our moment-to-moment experience, until we begin to relate to this body-mind process that we're all taking a very careful look at, developing the capacity to be with this body-mind process, and, and start waking up to all the habits of mind, the, the clinging, the aversion, um, the fear, the anxiety, the worry mind, the planning mind, the mind that fantasizes when it gets bored, the mind that fantasizes when, when it's feeling unhappy. You know, we all know these minds. All meditators face those minds at one point or another because that's what we've learned to do. And in many ways, the path, you know, I think of mindfulness, I think, what I think of the path is that it's a learning process that we're undergoing. And I think it's extremely useful to reframe our sense of practice rather than a, a, a practice of becoming you know, we've done a lot of becoming this lifetime. You know, a lot of times we might feel successful. A lot of times we, we may feel like we failed. But there's that, that energy of becoming that creates an enormous amount of dissatisfaction, self-criticism, self-judgment in our minds, torments us. We're shifting out of that mode, you know, of becoming and recognizing that we have something to learn. Know, something very fundamental, which is what is actually going to bring us happiness and peace. You know, how are we going to live a life that's meaningful? You know, where we feel connected to our relationships, where we feel connected to the activities that we engage in. So it's a learning. It's not a becoming. You know, so that what that means what was wonderful, I think, about Cheng Yen, one of the most inspiring things for me about him as a teacher, as I said, there's absolutely no doubt that he knew a lot more than I did. And that's why I was studying with him, because I, I wanted to learn some of that stuff. And, um, you know, to me, he was amazingly free. And for some reason, we connected. And we spent quite a bit of time together. And I was so surprised at that because, you know, he's this John master, you know, he gets a lot of, you know, people working for him and he's, you know, it's a hotshot in that world. Um, and, you know, we would have these conversations. And the thing that I saw quite clearly was the humility, the genuine humility, not the humble, you know, uh, you know, whatever that kind of pretense is, but genuine humility. In other words, he recognized that he was still learning. You know, you could see that he would share about problems that he had with people and staff people and organizations and fundraising. And even with his teachings, he would always be, he'd be, you know, you know, the, and it's not self-doubt. It was basically, he was exploring. You know, he was learning. He, 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 he didn't consider himself a finished product. And his practice was deep because he was learning and, de- and looking deeply. You know, and tasted the freedom in that. There was a deep letting go of suffering in that exploration. And that's the path that we're on. It's not just special for him. We're following in that path.
So what we begin to wake up to is, of course, habits of mind. And one thing I, I, you know, I guess I've been watching my mind long enough to that it that I can find it kind of funny, sometimes or see some humor in it. It may not feel particularly humorous right now for you, uh, in this moment, but. Um, you know, some of us have masters, PhDs, education, and even if we don't, you know, we still might think we're really smart. Uh, and then we sit and meditate. Uh, and all of a sudden, we kind of see, you know, like probably 95% of our thoughts are useless. Um, and there are, that me- there are a lot of thoughts, but a lot of them are the same. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of repetition. Uh, in our thinking, a lot of the same desires keep coming up, a lot of the same anger or the aversion or the resistance keeps coming up. Um, but the power of the practice is that's the material. In many ways, it's not that's what's supposed to happen, but that's the condition of the mind. And we're supposed to notice that. We're supposed to be aware of that. We're not supposed to not be aware of that and be free of habit, no. Maybe we become free of habit, but it's going to, that freedom is going to be earned through our awareness and our working in a skillful and compassionate way with things as they are, with these habits of mind. You know, that burden us, that weigh us down, that undermine us, that get in the way of freedom unless we begin to relate to them in a, in a way that does lead to freedom. And that's the power of mindfulness. See, every moment of mindfulness when we're mindful of a habit, say the habit of anxiety or fear or anger, every moment of mindfulness is facilitating a process of releasing the power of that particular habit. The function, certainly one of the functions of mindfulness, and Susan talked about the fact that mindfulness doesn't add it doesn't enhance, it doesn't elaborate, it simply lets us know in a very direct way. This is, you know, this the recognition, the seeing directly into the experience itself, the nature of that experience. It's not conditioned by preconceptions or judgments of should or shouldn't. It's free of that. Our thinking process, our analysis, our self-image, our self-concepts, our perceptions are all conditioned by those judgments. But mindfulness isn't. That's not, it. That's, not, it's, that's not that form of intelligence. It just doesn't have preconceptions or judgments. And so when it meets fear, it doesn't say, gee, uh, when am I going to get over this fear? I've been watching this for 20 years, and boy, I should be done with it by now. Or I really hate that feeling. Okay, that's, mindfulness doesn't do that. You know, our ideas about what should be happening, the expectations, I'll say more about that in a little while, that's what's telling us. That's the commentary. You know, that's the commentary that this experience shouldn't be happening. And of course, what that commentary is creating an enormous amount of suffering. It's not allowing us to explore the fear or to heal the fear. You know, because it has a lot of things that are complicating that process. Like our attitude and our ideas about it and the things that we've learned that we shouldn't be afraid. I mean, that was one of the main lessons that I learned in my childhood was don't be afraid, and if you are, hide it. You know, simply put. So, of course, that legacy gets carried into adulthood. And so when you're self-conscious, or you're afraid of speaking in public, you're afraid, you know, like I was when I first started, 
or fearful of this or fearful of that. Um, you know, you deal with it in a way that's unskillful, that's unproductive. You know, nobody said to me, ah, just be, you know, with it, you know. See if you can make room. I'll say, that, say something about that in a minute. Be more allowing. Allow yourself to have that feeling. But see if we can learn something from that experience. Well, when mindfulness meets fear, that moment, it might only be one moment before the mind reacts and kicks into the whole story around it, but that one moment of mindfulness is not feeding or reinforcing that. It's not claiming that particular fear or anxiety or anger as me or mine. It's not identifying with it. It's not saying, oh, that's who I am, that's who I'm going to be, and I'm a loser. Okay? Those are our ideas, the history, the legacy, things we've learned. Mindfulness doesn't do that. So the effect of that is that the mind slowly begins to decondition itself, and it begins to discover that there's another way of relating to that energy. It can be a little bit more allowing. Just taking fear or anger or sleepiness or restlessness or uh, doubt, just beginning to make, to establish the intention to take these experiences as objects of mindfulness is a radical transformation and reorientation in life. Because primarily human beings do not do that, and they certainly do not do that frequently enough to make a difference. What we're doing is instead of focusing on external conditions or looking at conditions as causing suffering, of course, you know, we can say a lot about conditions and certainly this planet is dysfunctional at best. But how to relate to that dysfunctionality, how to relate to those conditions is crucial. You know, one thing that came up in the groups was, you know, someone mentioning that kind of like maybe this practice and coming on retreat is selfish. You know? And I can see how it could seem that way. You know, and I think that if one didn't understand, have right understanding around practice, you know, it could be. The way I see it, and I do think this is a more accurate expression of where practice takes us, is that we're practicing not just for ourselves. This practice isn't just about you. You know, it's not just about your journey. You know, we're watching our minds, our bodies, our hearts. But the reality is, you know, we know the state of things. You know, we know how bad things are. We know how human beings are treating each other. And we know they're treating each other out of ignorance. You know, you can track that ignorance. I was thinking about this today. I hadn't really had this thought before. Might be off the topic, I'm not sure. But what we learn, we learn to perceive things a certain way. Like we learn to perceive ourselves and we learn to perceive others in a certain way. 
and we learn to cling to that perception. In other words, we invest in that perception as true. And out of that perception, so that perception is believed. It's taken as something that's true. And out of that perception, we weave views and opinions. We weave views and opinions. And out of views and opinions, we weave ideology. And out of ideology, we create self and other. And I would say that is an incredibly destructive force that creates, that generates an enormous amount of fear and anxiety. And I would call that samsara, the wheel. And so with mindfulness, we sink below the level of what we take for granted or the assumptions or what our surface perceptions are. I love the analogy that Susan used uh, last night around uh, the stone sinking to the bottom of the stream, you know, not being pushed around. That's what the practice does. It, it, it sinks below our belief system you know, our concepts about who we are, our concepts about what's possible. And that's where, that's, that's, that's the journey. That's the journey of freedom. And when we can go below those level of views and opinions, and and what I'm talking about is attachment to those views and opinions, really seeing that you're right, or that this is the truth, and this is the way it is, and this is how it has to be. And when we drop below that, well, what are we discovering? We're discovering that we aren't separate beings. You know, we're not separate when we drop below that surface. And that opens up the possibility for real compassion you know, to, to grow and develop because now we're beginning to see that we're all in this together. On the surface, you know, we're in opposition with each other because of what we've learned, because of our conditioning. And through that process, what happens is that we, through this process of awakening, facing ourselves, encountering ourselves, looking at ourselves, developing the capacity to be with ourselves, well then, we become a genuine resource for other beings. You know, I have a, everybody probably has a very complicated family. I have brothers and sisters. I don't. I don't have children, but I have brothers and sisters and a mother, um, who creates her share of her tr- problems. Um, and none of them have ever expressed interest in meditation. Um, I've been doing this practice for um, 41 years, and I know I look 30, but actually I've been practicing a long time. <laughs> I've been doing this practice for 41 years. And, you know, I've been teaching it for almost 25. And, you know, not a lot of questions about what I do. They're kind of happy that I found a livelihood, <laughs> you know, that I'm not, causing, I'm not causing a lot of trouble in the family. But who do you think they turn to when there's a crisis? <laughs> Which there always seems to be one or the other. Of course, me, you know, because they know, you know, they know that I'll, pro- I'll probably help them out of it to, to do my best job anyway. I can't solve their problems. Uh, you know, practice might help them with that. 
uh, but they're not interested. But the point is, is that that's what happens when you're practicing, is you, you really can be supportive on a, uh, on, a, on a meaningful level, you know, not just a pat on the hat and tell somebody to go away, um, in a real meaningful way because of the work we've done. So I, I do think that that's an important framework. When you're facing, when you think about comparing one sitting to the next sitting, that was a good sitting, that wasn't a good sitting, that was a good sitting, that wasn't a good sitting, and you reduce practice to that framework, uh, it's a very small frame, you know, very small frame. It does have everything to do with paying attention to the present moment, but out of paying attention to the present moment, uh, a tremendous amount of learning and transformation occurs just by paying attention to the present moment. You know, and mindfulness is, has that capacity uh, to uh, discover. It makes it possible for us to discover because uh, many of us have already tried to think our way out of this. When I arrived at this practice as a young guy, I had a lot of really significant problems. Um, but there was one thing I had going for me, was that I realized at a pretty young age that I wasn't going to be able to think my way out of suffering. That was really helpful, because when I finally learned about mindfulness, I realized, yeah. It's not that, it's not that you know, thinking can't be useful, but there needs to be awareness along with it. And then that clarifies our thinking. When we're thinking in habitual ways, what we're doing is we're imposing the past onto the present. When we're thinking, when there's mindfulness and awareness and connectedness, what we're doing is our thoughts have everything to do with responding to what is actually happening. Not what we think should be happening or shouldn't happen or what happened in the past or any of that. We're responding not just based on our history of the story we have about ourselves, but we're seeing the situation more fully, more directly, more clearly. And so our thought process, our analysis, the use of wise thought becomes productive. But without awareness, it, we tend to be subject to that mind, subject to those thoughts. So mindfulness is the key because it, it opens that door. It opens that gate. So what paves the way for mindfulness to grow and develop and mature? What paves the way for us to have access to that innate intelligence? You know, not just thinking intelligence, but mindfulness intelligence. Silent knowing, awareness of what is happening right now without the commentary, without the shoulds and shouldn'ts. You know, what's going to pave the way? Uh, well, what paves the way and this doesn't take 30 years. What paves the way is working on our attitude, our attitude and practice. As I said about Cheng Yen, humility is key. Not, having, not feeling like we know that we have all the answers. You know, our conditioning, our cultural conditioning, particularly in the West, is that we're supposed to have the answers. If we don't, we're supposed, we pretend we, we have the answers. Um, and there can be a lot of shame, you know, around not having the right answers. 
In this practice, there is no success. I've already said this. There is no success and no failure. That is not the framework. There's no such thing as a, a successful meditation. There's no, su- <laughs> it's hard to say. There's no such thing as a, a, a meditation that fails. That's not the framework. It's not the framework. It's not about that becoming successful or being a loser or failing. It's about a process. You know, a process that requires perseverance. A process that's continually unfolding and changing. That, there, it, that it can be at times a roller coaster. But even those times when it's very difficult, that's not failure. The reality is that some of the deepest insights arise under very difficult conditions. You know, whether we're working with a difficult state of mind, whether we're uh, working with a difficult situation we're in, uh, a lot of deep insight you know, can arise out of that experience. I personally, you know, sometimes... Uh, I personally think that first couple of days of retreat are just as valuable as the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh day. Now, I know that the hindrances are arising a lot more, oftentimes early on, but it doesn't matter. The potential for learning in these first couple of days, if we realize that we're here to learn, you know, if we cling to, well, it's supposed to be peaceful, it's, I'm not supposed to be sleepy, I shouldn't be getting restless, I, you know, it's really boring, uh, I hate this, and we get caught up in all that stuff, you know, which really kind of undermines us, then there's not a lot of learning that goes on. There's a lot of resistance and a lot of judgment. Those are the habits of mind kicking in. But the reality is, is if we just say, okay, we're sitting down and we're really meant to kind of learn about who we are and what we're doing or who we're not. And so sitting down, everybody's having insights, I'm sure. And one of the insights is that you're not in control of your mind, right? Are you in control of your mind? Can you tell it to stop thinking? And then it just stays, stop thinking for maybe an hour or two? I don't think so. Yeah. Can you tell your mind to be happy? Not really. You can cultivate metta. It's a different story. You're not telling your mind to be happy. You're just nurturing that innate quality. You know, just like we're nurturing mindfulness. You know, metta, loving kindness, is below the surface of these preconceptions and ideas about what's there within us. We're so self-judgmental. We're so self-critical. You know, we don't, we don't have access to what our potential is, and that's tragic. You know, we constantly underestimate you know, what our potential is because we don't know it. You know, most of us don't know it. We've got to go inside, check it out, look, explore. We don't just discover hindrances. We don't just discover this. We discover happiness, equanimity, peace, loving kindness, truth, beautiful qualities that everybody in this room and everyone on the planet has within them. But out of ignorance and delusion, out of a misunderstanding of what's going to bring happiness, there are so many obstacles with so many beings that get in the way of tapping into that. And you can see, you know, it does take effort. You know, and Susan's right, it's like a paradox. We're talking about relaxing. You know, we're talking about relaxing. But we're also, there's a quality of effort that needs to be made on this path. You know, it's obvious obvious to everybody in this room 
that there's effort involved in this practice. Now, the quality of that effort, what that means, changes. It's moment, you know, changes, it evolves, it develops. It's part of the wisdom practice. It's part of a mindfulness practice. It's a part, it's part of the practice of getting to know yourself to discover what is wise effort, what does facilitate mindfulness, what does facilitate loving kindness and compassion within us, what allows us to work with these hindrances, what kind of effort allows us to work with these hindrances so that they're no longer a hindrance. It's just something to learn from, material. There's so much to learn from sleepiness. You know, there's the aversion, but there's more to it. You know, if we can explore it open-heartedly. Lost my train of thought. See if I can get it back. Can anybody give me like two words? Open-heartedness. Yeah, no, that won't do it. Probably said that ten times tonight. Um, no, it's okay. It's gone. Oh, yeah, we're talking about attitude, aren't we? Yeah. Okay. So attitude. Okay, I want to. I do want to say a little bit about this. It's to me, it's really important uh, in terms of facilitating mindfulness. Yeah, I'm back. Uh, in terms of facilitating mindfulness, paving the way. And what I said was, it's not thirty years. It doesn't have to take thirty years. It's a difficult lesson because it counters our conditioning and our everything we've learned about ourselves and what is going to lead to happiness. But still, um, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't have to take 30 years. You, in fact, you can start cultivating it uh, in this moment or a few minutes when we're done, whatever. Um, and that, of course, is, a, is an attitude where, um, how do we learn? You know, let's, let's look at the basic fundamental principles of learning. If we're going to learn something new, if we go in thinking we know, that's not going to help. If we go in with a preconception about how things are, that's not going to work. We're not going to receive any new information. If we go into a relationship with somebody, we're having a conversation, we know exactly what they're about, who they are, and what they're going to say, and that we place some value judgment on it. There's no relationship there. No meaningful relationship. You're not being present. You have an agenda. You have preconceptions. You have all sorts of, you have perceptions. You have all, you're clinging to ideas. So there's no connection. There's, there's no energy. It's not dynamic. You know, mindfulness facilitates, it's a dynamic process because it's facilitating this learning and discovery. Now, attitude. Key to learning. Because if we can approach practice and if we can remind ourselves that it's about the here and now, and how can we gain access to the here and now, how can we relate to the here and now in a way that we can actually learn from whatever does arise, well, what we have to do is, in some ways, is get out of the way. And that means being more allowing. You know, being allowing of what our actual experience is. Okay, that's not easy. Okay, because we have a lot of built-up judgments about the way it is, about who we think we are. So there's a couple of investigative practices. There's a couple of questions that we can um, reflect on and maybe... Uh, bring it up in our practice every once in a while when we're encountering something difficult where we feel very contracted around it. And it's an investigative question. It's not that we're imposing, allowing on the experience or a different attitude. We're really just investigating the possibility 
that we might be able to hold this particular experience. I don't say hold on to, but hold, examine, investigate, observe. Uh, hold it with it to investigate whether it is possible to be more allowing. And a couple of investigative questions I've used in my practice, very helpful, I think, is you know, asking yourself, can I make room you know, for the sleepiness right now? Can I make room for the restlessness or the boredom? Can I, another way of saying it is, can I make space for this particular experience, whatever it might be? Okay. So it's, it's simply just asking whether, whether, you, whether it's possible to do that. A lot of times we assume, because we get caught up in the conflict, that we, we're not going to be able to do that. So it's opening to that possibility. Now my guess is, if it's difficult, you might get a no. You know? No, I really can't make room for this experience. I don't want it. You know, and as soon as it's over, I'm going to be a lot happier. Okay, so that's, of course, resistance, right? And if we pay close enough attention to resistance, we can see the suffering. And resistance is a contracted, painful place to be. So then it would be, a question would be is, can I make room for the resistance? Is it okay to have this resistance right now? The judging, the self-judging, the anger, the frustration, the doubt, whatever the resistance might be expressing itself, you know, can you make room for it? You know, can you allow it to be there, even if it's just for a few moments? And it's an exploration. You know, It's an exploration. Rather than assuming we can't, or rather than assuming that we don't want to, and that's where we have to land. So asking that question, can you make room? Another investigative question. I like this a lot when we're dealing with something really painful. When we're dealing with something painful, which is whether it's a physical pain, whether it's an emotional pain, whether it's a reaction that we're having, attracted reaction we're having to an environment that we're in. It's that acknowledgement and recognition that this, this experience is painful. It's, it, to me, it's, sometimes it's very helpful to, to just acknowledge you know, that this state that I find myself in hurts. It's painful. You know, feeling bored can be painful. Feeling the, being with the body not just because we're sitting in a certain posture on a regular basis, but, you know, pain surfaces as we develop more awareness sometimes. We, we, we're sinking below our ordinary consciousness, you know, which is managing things in a certain way, oftentimes pushing them away. We're opening ourselves up a little bit here. Uh, and we're, we'll discover things about our bodies too. And it's helpful information to have, but also it's challenging. So, we, so you know, how to relate to that. And, and that's a wisdom, compassion practice, for sure. Um, it's not that simple. It's not, there's no formula. But the question I like to ask is, can I hold this pain with compassion? Yeah. Can I hold this emotional pain, this fear, this anxiety, uh, this self-criticism, this self-judgment, this self-anger? Can I hold that experience, <coughs> that painful experience with compassion? instead of more self-criticism, more judgment. And it's simply just asking yourself that question. Just opening up to another possibility. And we may not be there, and that's fine. 
but we want to stay open you know to the possibility of change we can't push it along we can't hurry it by any stretch of the imagination we can just keep showing up and at the beginning we often don't have the faith you know sometimes in the first retreat that's the biggest hit the first couple of days is a shaken faith you know we've been practicing you know for 20 minutes a day and it's been really helpful and really you're really grateful that you found the practice and it's the best thing on the planet and then you come on retreat and this is it uh, first couple of days it doesn't go so smoothly um, and and because we had an expectation that when we came you know it was going to be different it would feel different it would just feel like we were taking off from that place and it would just keep getting better and better you know in terms of how we're defining or evaluating better I have no doubt that your practice is deepening, you know, while you're here. I have no doubt at all. But we could, again, be deepening and then just recognizing where the mind is at and the hindrances that are arising. So, practicing without expectation of results. How does that sound? Let's imagine it just for like 30 seconds. What would it be like to practice meditation? You put your effort in, you show up, do the schedule, do your practice. You sit there and there's no expectation of anything that should or shouldn't be happening. No expectation at all. I have a feeling there would be a lot more relaxation and a lot more peace. And I think it would be a lot easier to deal with the present moment. But we're interested in what's actual, what our actual experience is. In our actual experiences, we bring in expectation into meditation, just like the expectation that the retreat's going to go a certain way after you've been sitting 20 minutes a day. Or if you're an experienced meditator, you've done one retreat, so, and that went really well. And then you come in with the expectation the next retreat is just going to take off and just keep going in the same direction and, you know, enlightenment's right around the corner. Uh, or you have a really difficult retreat, but you know there's some value in it, so you expect when you go back. I've talked to folks, this is interest in the mind. Uh, they had a really, really hard time, but they saw the value in that, so they're kind of hoping to have a hard time again, <laughs> you know, because, the, you know, the, the investment is like, if it gets really hard, I'll learn a lot. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, and then they come and it's really peaceful and calm. And they'll come in complaining in an interview. Like, you know, am I doing it right? I'm like calm, I'm peaceful. I'm really appreciating the teachings. I, I really feel the community is holding me <laughs> and not getting in my way, you know, or whatever it is. And, you know, we interpret that as something wrong. Uh, and the reality is this practice is continually changing. So when we cling to an expectation, we're setting ourselves up for, of course, disappointment. And, the, and so what we want to do is include, you know, expectation in how we, and how that expresses itself in our practice. Like, what are the signals that we're clinging to an expectation that it might be causing us suffering? I'll just very briefly, that some of the most common uh, states that come out of expectation, if you look at these states of mind, and you look a little bit closely, not analyzing, figuring out, but just settling into the feeling, you might be able to recognize, and I actually feel like this can be helpful sometimes, is to recognize what the hidden expectation is. And so oftentimes, the, when we find ourselves evaluating and comparing and judging, 
whether evaluating, comparing sittings or evaluating, comparing, and judging other people in relationship to us, there's expectation underneath that. It's driving it. We're, t- we're telling ourselves that we should be a certain way or we shouldn't be. Uh, there's self-criticism. Whenever we're criticizing ourselves, it's because we're disappointing ourselves. We think we shouldn't be having this experience. There's the expectation that we should be something other than we are. When we feel disappointed with what our experience is, there's an expectation that we're clinging to, that it shouldn't be this way. When we feel despair, when we feel self-doubt, it's all flowing out of clinging to an expectation. And so what we want to do is when these states of mind come, just be mindful of them. See if we can relate. If we feel overwhelmed, we can do the metta for sure. It's very useful in working with these states to begin to see them for what they are. And they're really simply a reflection of clinging to the shoulds and shouldn'ts, which of course are what tormenting us and what makes it very difficult to relax into the present. Because this process is about relaxing into the present. There's just a lot of obstacles that we have to get to know in a very intimate way. And when we when we're mindful of them, those obstacles are just things to be aware of. That's it. Because we're not trying to get somewhere else. And so whatever's arising, we want to practice, hold, relate, nurture an attitude that says, okay, this is how it is for me right now. I'm not liking being here. I'm liking being here. Acknowledging that is so unburdening. You don't have to like it. You don't have to like everything you hear. You don't have to like all the meditations. Nobody does like everything, I don't think. At least I don't talk to them about that. Uh, You know, you get the complaints. Um, But the point is, what matters is learning from the experience so that we transform our minds, so that we are free in a way that is much more reliable than the freedom that comes when we cling to an expectation or we cling to some concept about what's going to bring happiness and what isn't. You know, what should be happening, what shouldn't be happening. The freedom can be discovered, it is discovered in the here and now. And in many ways, as Susan mentioned, it doesn't matter what's arising. What matters is our relationship to it. And the relationship we're cultivating in this practice is one of being mindful, nurturing loving kindness and open-hearted attention in an attitude that is allowing, that is interested in touching what our actual experience is, and trusting that that awareness is going to lead to freedom. Okay, so let's just uh, sit for maybe 30 seconds.